Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 3. If you're able to remain standing for a bit longer, please do so. Uh, and uh, let's look at our text this morning. It's on page 46. If you're using a Bible from the, the pew, you could grab that and read that along with us. Otherwise, Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 and reading down through verse 12. I called an audible this morning. We're, uh, I don't know who thought we could get through the whole third chapter of Exodus, but that was silly. So, But uh, let's just read a part of chapter 3 in the book of Exodus, uh, and uh, let's just look at this in two parts, Lord willing, this week and next week. Uh, so, beginning in verse 3 of Exodus chapter, verse 1 of Exodus chapter 3, uh, these are God's words for us this morning, and here's what God says. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this Great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of uh, that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. 
When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There is no word like your word. It's a gift. It's a treasure to us. It's a privilege to read it and to hear it read. And our prayer now is that you, by your Spirit, would be working in our midst, in in our hearts, that we would see wonderful things from your Word. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Exodus chapter 3 is an incredible chapter of Scripture. It is a chapter of Scripture in which Moses and us now through the Word of God, we are able to to catch a glimpse of who God is. This is God as He wants to be known. This is God as He wants you and I uh, to know Him. As we think about this passage two things I want us to think about, really, and it's based upon the first thing we'll look at this morning, which I have labeled in your insert, discovering the Redeemer requires in a realistic evaluation. And that's really rooted in Moses' question, who am I? In order for you and I to know God, we, we must have as a prerequisite, something of a realistic evaluation of who we are. And then secondly, Lord willing, we'll look at next week, knowing something of God, discovering the Redeemer requires a revealed experience. And that's going to be revolving around the next question that's asked in this text that we didn't get to. Who are you? Moses asks, who am I? And then in verse 13, he asks, who, who, are, who are you? And God answers each of those questions. And in so doing, God gives us an answer so as to how we might know him and discover him as he wants to be known. Well, chapter 3 is a bit strange. Moses is now about 80 years old. For the last 40 years, so for the second half of his life thus far, he has spent that time in Midian. He's now a married man. He's now working for the family business. And um, he is out in the wilderness, we are told. He's, he's uh, probably somewhere between Midian and Egypt. Uh, and, and we're told he's at Horeb. Later, we will know Horeb to also be Sinai. Uh, But what we're told now is that he is at Horeb, the mountain of God. We are at God's mountain. Now, that's a bit of a misnomer. Uh, Which mountains belong to God? Well, all of them do. And the valleys and the oceans and the skies and everything is God's. It belongs to God. But there is, there is something particularly unique about this mountain as to why it got such a, a, a classified designation, God's mountain. And we'll see more as we uh, wade into this a bit, a bit more as to what we mean by this being the mountain of God. Well, Moses uh, notices as he is tending to the sheep, he notices there 
Um, uh, in verse 2, he, he looked and behold, uh, a bush was burning. And yet, it was not being consumed. <laughs> Started reading a, a book this week entitled The Big Burn. And it's, a, it's the story of 1910, uh, a ravenous fire that consumed much of northern Idaho, parts of the state of Washington, and parts of the state of Montana. Of course, um, I'm always fascinated by any book that has the name Teddy Roosevelt in its subtitle. And so and this, this book has, has that. Uh, he saved football. I've read that book. That was really good. And now he's going to save the forests. And so I'm, I'm reading this book. But, uh, and and it's, it's really about how uh, that whole area was decimated uh, because of a, 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 a massive fire that ran through there. And, and, and yet what is particularly unique about this episode is there is a bush that is burning and the bush is not being consumed. Now that defies um, the physics of fire. According to Smokey the Bear, three things... No, really, it's SmokeyTheBear.com. So, um, uh, uh, according to Smokey the Bear... Uh, three things are needed to start and sustain a fire. Three things are needed to ignite uh, and to continue a, a fire. Uh, there has to be heat, uh, there has to be fuel, and there has to be oxygen. And, and those three elements are interdependent. Uh, you take one of them away and you're going to have a hard time either starting or continuing a fire. Um, and, um, and, and, and yet what is at the heart of a fire is heat and oxygen require fuel. And in that sense, fuel, uh, a, a, a fire, it, it eventually uh, consumes itself. Because what is it that actually burns is fuel. Something is on fire. The right amount of heat and the right amount of oxygen have, have uh, blended together in this fuel, this substance that is burning. And when it, when it runs out, then the fire runs out. Already we are learning something about God here. In other words, this, this ain't right. This ain't normal. This ain't ordinary. Uh, a, a fire eventually burns itself out because it consumes the very thing that supplies its fuel. And yet here is a fire uh, that is burning and yet not consumed. Here is a reminder that, and we'll see this in a, a bit more even clearly in a moment, but here is a reminder that we are not dealing with somebody who's a lot like us. We are not dealing with somebody who is subjected to the laws of physics. We are dealing with somebody who rules and reigns above everything, even the laws of physics. I mean, he's the one who put those laws together, and it's, it's not difficult for him to superimpose uh, his own uh, wishes even over how the very physics of fire operates. Well, Moses is fascinated by a, 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 a burning bush that doesn't burn up. And so he walks over toward it. As he's walking over to it, God, says, God saw that he was walking over to it. And, um, and, and as, as Moses is making his way to, his, to the bush, uh, God calls Moses' name. Moses, 
Moses. Moses replies, this is not the first time we'll hear this response. This is a great response to the Lord. Here I am. You remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned against God and God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day uh, and, and God called out for Adam. We, we have the notion of Adam and Eve hiding from the Lord, not calling out, here I am to the Lord. This is a gracious thing that Moses would, uh, would have the sense to know to respond to the voice of God. Verse 5, God says to Moses, stop. Don't, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off your feet. And for the first time in the revelation of Scripture, uh, we're told something very important about God. He says, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. God is revealing himself in this burning bush. God is engaging in a conversation with Moses through this burning bush. We're told on the one hand it was the angel of the Lord. And you know what? Sometimes in the Old Testament when it says the angel of the Lord, it literally means an angel, a created being. And and yet sometimes the scripture refers to an angel of the Lord as the Lord himself. Someone who on the one hand is distinct from God and yet on the other hand is God. And that's really what's in play here. We, We have this appearance of someone who is uh, distinct from God and yet is God. And and, and so already we're beginning to get little hints and suggestions about the the triune nature of the one true God. He is one God and three persons. Even John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus, who is the Word in John 1, was both uh, distinct from God and yet was completely God. And we have a similar dynamic going on here, not as clearly revealed, and, and yet we have this messenger from the Lord who is himself the Lord. And the first thing we're told about this Lord is that he is holy. I'm pretty sure this is the first time in Scripture that this term holy is used in reference to God. So Moses is getting a first-time lesson here, if you would. He will later say in Exodus 15, on the backside of the, uh, of the Exodus experience, he says, he'll say, who is a God like you, uh, majestic in holiness and awesome in glory, working wonders? And Moses captures it. He gets it. Who is a God like you? Uh, you, you are holy. And, it's, and, and part, that's part of what we get at when we use the term holy. Uh, that that uh, God is in a category all himself. Uh, uh, literally, the word holy means separate 
or separation. Holy means to be set apart. And, and, and certainly, um, oftentimes we will read, and we will see this a whole bunch in places like Leviticus and other places, that, that holiness refers to a moral righteousness, that, that we are to be separate unto God relationally in terms of how we would display the same kind of moral righteousness that he displays. But I would suggest here it's a, it's a much larger category than just simply moral righteousness. It, 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 it's referring to God being completely other than we are. It's, it's important that as we understand scriptures is that the scriptures... Uh, reveals a very clear distinction between the creator and the creation. And one of the concepts that the scripture uses to try to help us to understand that God is not just simply a larger version of us. He knows a few more things than we do. He's a little bit stronger than we are. He's able to get around quicker than we are. Uh, no, no he, he is not a larger version of us. He is separate, set apart from all that he has made. He is, he is not controlled by anything that he has made. He, he, he rules above everything that he has made. And so Moses is getting, and, and even this burning bush is reflecting that. How in the world do you explain the laws of physics of fire when you have a bush that is burning and yet doesn't consume? Well, this is a bush in which the, the very otherness of God is engaged in and superintending at this moment. Now, part of what that means, and that's seen in God saying, don't come any closer. And even later in a couple of more verses where it says that, and Moses hid his face. We sometimes have too chummy of a notion of God. Our notions of God are about the same category that, that uh, my grandkids regard me. Soft, flexible, easygoing grandpa. God is not anybody's grandpa. And there is, there is no being that exists that is more loving and caring and gracious and gentle than our God. And, and, and yet, we also have to understand that, that we don't just uh, come into God's presence in a careless and flippant way. There is something about a close proximity to God that is dangerous territory. And so Moses is told to take his shoes off. Now, I think in that cultural expression, taking one's shoes off is a sign of respect or even, even reverence, if you would. And that's an important reminder to us. While we may not have that particular cultural expression, in other words, we, it's okay to come to church with your shoes on, and it's okay to leave them on, We would also be wise to remember that when we do gather in, in the presence of the Lord in, in worship, 
It, it, it certainly can be a joyous time, and yet it must be a serious and reverent time. Well, this is a part of what's going on. God begins to reveal himself, and he explains there in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I, I know their sufferings. And then verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. On the one hand, what we have just read is a portrait of of God's activity as to how he is going to redeem his people Israel out of Egyptian slavery. But there's a pattern here that, that begins to unfold in Scripture that informs how God does redemption. And so that even now when we run to the New Testament and we hear about the work of redemption pertaining to a a spiritual bondage that we have, that, that we are enslaved to sin, a mess that we can't get ourselves out of, and it requires an intervention of God's redeeming work to redeem or to rescue us from out of our sin, we begin to see here the pattern is that, that God's redemptive work is always a redemption from something, but it is also a redemption unto something. Now, in a very historical, physical, literal way, what this means here is that God is taking, going to take the Israelites out of this realm, out of the realm of death and slavery and bondage. He said, I'm going to take you out of that land, and I'm going to take you to a good and broad place, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to transfer you to a whole other realm. And that's what God does for his people in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just simply rescue us from our sin, but we're we're told in in places like uh, Colossians chapter 1, where he says there um, uh, that uh, he has delivered, verse 13 of chapter 1, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, God doesn't do a halfway kind of sort of redemption. God doesn't rescue a people merely from something. Oh, he does rescue a people from something. But he also rescues a people unto something. He says, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, imagery of the book of Exodus, a a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is how God does redemption. He doesn't just save us so that the guilt of our sins no longer hangs over our heads. He calls us out of sin and he calls us unto himself. 
We now belong to him. We are now a part of his kingdom. We now operate under his good rule. Every one of God's rescuing events, whether it's in the book of Exodus or it's in the the fuller, more complete issues of redemption in the New Testament, God always rescues for a purpose. And that first purpose is that we would be God's people. We would now live in his realm. But there's a second element of that, and we're about to see how this is dropped on Moses. When God rescues a people, he rescues them unto himself, but he rescues them unto a commission, an an assignment. Now, everything has been weird up to this point, but it's about to get kicked up a whole nother notch. God has said in verses 7 and 8, uh, I will come down. I have come down. And, and I've, I've heard, I've seen, I'm going to come down. I'm going to take my people out of the land of Egypt, and I'm going to put them in uh, the land that, I'm, uh, that I promised them. <laughs> then he says in verse 10, now, at this moment, I think if there's a category of Moses freaking out, this is, this is when the circuits are about to blow. Come, he says in verse 10, I will send you. To, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said you were going to go. You just said you've come down and you're going to deliver your people out of Egyptian slavery and take them to the good and broad land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And now you're saying, I got to go. Which one is it? How does God do any of his work? On the one hand, he doesn't need any intermediaries to do his work. And yet, he is pleased to involve intermediaries in the accomplishment of his work. God doesn't rescue us so that we could just simply gather here this morning and to sing his praises. Oh, he does do that, but, but it's a bit more complex than that. God gathers us unto himself that we might gather here and sing his praises. And when we leave out of here, we might, in another uh, angle, sing his praises. We are a commissioned people. And so he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I've come down to deliver my people, and I've come down to deliver my people by commissioning you to be a part of delivering my people. What is God's commission on us? Well, funny, I should pick the term commission. I kind of did it on purpose because our Lord himself uh, gave us that commission. It's not altogether new or different from what he's been doing ever since the days of Moses and Abraham. 
but he calls a people unto himself, that that people that he calls unto himself would now be the instruments in which God would call other people unto himself. God has dispatched us this very week that we would be a part of his plan. His, we would be uh, members of the commission uh, uh, that we would declare the praiseworthiness of God, that we would declare the saving work of Jesus Christ, and that we would explain to anyone who would give us an ear to listen uh, as time and, and space and all these factors afforded that, that we would be included in the work of seeing people come to Jesus. That's, that's that's, that's not the work of just simply a few of the Green Beret Christians. This is just a commissioned work that God gives to any and each and all of us. We are commissioned to, to go and tell others about Jesus. And yet I think uh, in a similar way to Moses' um, concern... Uh, he says in verse uh, 11, But Moses said to God... Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is the part, this is the first part. Who am I? This is, this is, the, this is the prerequisite for having a good grasp of knowing who God is. And that is we have to have a good grasp of who we are. We have to have a realistic evaluation or a realistic assessment of who we are. In other words, I, I think at this point, I don't, I don't think that, that, that Moses is trying to oppose God's plan. I, I, just, I just think he's, he has no confidence that he could play any part or a significant part in God's plan. He doubts that he can succeed. Moses believes that he is inadequate He's not trying, I don't think he's trying to get out of the job. I could be wrong about that. Just don't think that he's really not convinced that he is up to the job. For you and I to really see and know who God is, we we really have to have an accurate estimation of who and what we are. In other words, the quick and skinny of it is humility is that prerequisite for us to see God. Isaiah 57 verses 15 uh, says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in a high and holy place. And then it also says, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Who am I? Does God answer the question? Look at, look at his response. Look at his response. Who, who am I? Verse 11, um, but, um, uh, verse 12, rather, He said, God said, but I will be with you. Who am I? I'll be with you. In other words, on the one hand, I don't think the Lord really 
uh, answers the literal question that Moses asks. And yet, the Lord, being the Lord, knows what the real question is. And, 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 and so, um, the Lord knows that Moses is lacking confidence that he can do this job. And so, the way that the Lord boosts the confidence of Moses is that he reminds Moses Technically, not who he is as Moses, but who God is. I will be with you. You, you could argue that God is, in a sense, uh, siding with Moses in his uh, reasonable uh, assessment and evaluation. I, I, I can't do this. I don't have what it takes to do this. And God says, that's a given. I'll be with you. The same God who commissions us in Matthew 28 is the same God who says, and and I will be with you always to the ends of the earth. God never kicks us out of here and says, you're on your own, kid. Make good of it. In fact, even in a larger sense... Part of the point that we're trying to make this morning, even as we get to next week, is, is uh, 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 discovering, discovering who we are requires discovering who God is. Who am I? I'll be with you. And in a moment, we're going to ask, well, who are you? you know? uh, and, and so knowledge about ourselves requires knowledge of God. I say that to say, if you don't know the Lord, uh, then you're always going to be, uh, you're always going to come up short in really even understanding who you are. I mean, after all, being how we are creatures made in the image of God, in order, a part of then understanding who we are requires, well, if we're made in the image of God, who's God? Because that's the image whom I'm made in. In other words, the exodus was a job that that only the Lord could do. And yet the Lord was sending Moses to do it. The Lord delights to commission his people to tasks that only he could do. So, uh, just as a sidebar, I would just... So here's how God doesn't answer this question. Who am I? I Today, uh, the the cult of self-esteem has shaped the way we think about everything. And and I mean self-esteem, meaning in its literal sense, to esteem something really means to worship something. And so self-esteem, i.e. self-worship, is really a dead-end street. I think we all ought to have a, an accurate self-awareness. I think we ought to have a proper self-image. But, but I'm squeamish when we talk so frequently as we do about self-esteem. I thought it's God that we're supposed to esteem, not ourselves. But in this cult of self-esteem, there's, here's how we would rewrite the story. Who am I that I should go, you got this? God didn't say, you got this. God says, I'll be with you. And God doesn't say, you're the right man for the job. No, God doesn't say that. God says, I will be with you. 
Knowing who God is resets understanding who we are. Moses, is, Moses feels like he's not up to the tasks, but pun intended, in essence, God says, you're not, but I am. And we'll see next week the fuller implication of what that means by I am. Am. And, and here's a sign for you, goes on to say, and here's a sign for you uh, that I have sent you. Uh, when I have brought you out, uh, uh, when I brought my people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In other words, here's the sign that you'll know I am with you and that I have sent you. You're coming back right here. So do you see what God has said to him? It's really a two-part answer. Who am I? God has answered that with, here is my presence and here is my promise. I will be with you and I promise you this. We're coming back right here because you will serve me. You will worship me right here. It's even the fuller sweep, going back to a previous comment, when when God redeems and rescues, He doesn't just simply free us from something, but He frees us unto something. He doesn't just redeem a group of Israelites and say, go on, get get out of here. No, He says, now, we're coming back here, and you're worshiping me here. God's redemptive, redemptive work finds its completion in how God's redeemed people have new fresh desires to worship Him. I'm bringing you back here and you're worshiping me here. God's plan was not to get Israel out of Egypt per se, but to get Israel out of Egypt so that he would bring them unto himself so that they would worship him. That's God's grand design. God wants himself to be worshipped. And so he will gladly rescue a people unto himself for such purpose. Now, implied in that, though, is is that Moses is hearing God's assurance of his presence, but God is also hearing, uh, but Moses is also hearing uh, something of the surety of God's promises. And Moses will head to Egypt shortly by faith. And what I mean by, by faith. Faith is not an irrational, uh, nor a dis, uh, Ill, Ill, irrational conclusion, nor a disconnect from reality. Faith, we are told, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Without faith, we are told, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Faith is not irrational, nor is it a disconnect from reality. In fact, faith is rooted in the conviction that nothing is impossible for God. Anything God says that He can do, He can do. 
And so you're coming back here on this mountain, and the fuel that's going to drive Moses all the way over to Egypt and back is that conviction of, 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 of things not seen, the assurance of things not hoped for. God says, we're all coming back here. And, 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 and the fuel that dispatches Moses on this journey is such a promise. Faith is not even mere optimism. Although if I have a choice between hanging around an optimistic person and a pessimistic person, I'm going to pick the optimistic person. So if you want to be my friend, be optimistic. So if you don't want to be my friend, if you want to scare me off, just be negative and I'll run and hide from you. But, but faith is not mere optimism. Not, it's not just a positive outlook in life, as wonderful as that is. Faith is a particular response to what God has explicitly said in His Word. In other words, the object of faith is not, a, not simply what you want to happen or what you think ought to happen or what you believe to happen. Faith is a response to what God says is going to happen. You will come back and worship me, serve me on this mountain. That's faith. That's taking God at his word. I've, I've got to close. I've got to quit. I've gone way over, and, and theoretically, I'm only halfway done. Well, we close with just simply, with just simply this. Any and all who turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And that's just not a hopeful thought that I have. That's the surety of God's word. Any who come to Christ, he will in no way turn aside. All who look to Jesus shall be pardoned and redeemed, shall be brought into the very family of God, and shall be given the same commission that every other member of God's family has been given. So turn to Christ. Experience that our redeeming God by what Christ has done on the cross for our sins. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work of redemption that you supply to your people and that you provide and offer to any and each of us this morning. So I pray, Father, that as we have begun to think about the redemptive work of the Israelites that you would show us an even greater and more wonderful work of redemption, the redemption that comes through your precious Son, Jesus. May we be your redeemed people, redeemed unto a purpose, redeemed to belong to you, redeemed to serve you, redeemed to carry out your commission. Thank you, Father, for we pray these things in Christ's name.